Live from the USS PSE, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 291, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Tom. This is Kaz. This is Scott. This is Mark. This is Albert. And we get mail. Edgar H. writes, I see a lot of hinges. What hinges should I use? The licky sticky kind? <laughs> well, it depends on what you're licky sticking to. That's true. If you want to hang a cover or a large souvenir sheet, I think corners work better. But actually, for envelopes, you know, I have my exhibit, and I will use just terrible hinges because the terrible ones really hold the cover in place where it's not going to fall off. Yeah, but, but then you when would you try and take it off. You're yeah, but you're it's done. it's a cover though, so you know, backs of covers tend not to be looked at very much. But for a stamp, you would never use these, and um, they're actually prints. Spelled with a Z at the end. It's my opinion that those are the absolute best hinges for covers and actual, absolutely the worst hinges for stamps. Yeah. Well, they, they, they specifically they design them that way. Yeah. But you, but, you know, they work fine on used stamps because you can just soak them off. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Right. But, but uh, they're not peelable. Not I, even a little bit. You know, I, 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 think, uh, I think if you're collecting mint stamps... Uh, Mounts are the way to go. Even if the stamp is already previously hinged, I, I think you just don't... I just don't like adding another hinge to the, to a hinged stamp already. Well, I have a difference of opinion. I mean, what if it's lightly hinged yeah. and you can't get a peelable hinge? Now you're adding a non-peelable hinge to a very lightly hinged stamp and you're kind of making it less desirable. Now, people listening to this podcast 50 years from now are going to hate me for saying this because it's going to be, you know, 50 years later. But I believe that like four cent face value and later, let's say 1850s and later, you're spending more money for the mounts than you are for the stamps. You I mean, mean this, 1950s. The yeah. 1950s, yeah. Hey, did I see 1850s? You said four cents and later. Oh, okay. And then you said 1850. I'm sorry. I mean, I collect 1850s. Um, 1950 stamps and later, the mounts cost so much more that it, you may pay face value for the stamp, and the mount may cost you like 15 cents, 20 cents, and you got hundreds of stamps. I have no problem whatsoever with you hinging mint stamps into your collection after a certain date. Before a certain date, you know, then you have real value to the gum. The gum has value. And uh, so there you want to use the mounts, but I know so many people who spend hundreds of dollars in mounts to mount up half that in stamps. 
My only comment about that is, um, since we're involved in the grading, um, if you hinge a stamp, you basically intrinsically have killed it, but if you put it in a mount and it happens to be gradable, let's say you have a 98 or 100, um, you're actually, you will get paid back for using the mounts. Especially if you've been careful how you pick, pick that, those singles out. Okay. Right. Like I said, 50 years from now, people are going to say, yeah, cash, you're an idiot. Right. Yeah, they may well, say. They say that now. Yeah, they, <laughs> they probably do. Why wait? <laughs> but, yeah. uh, well, and grading may change, you know, over time. Today yeah. we grade for centering. Maybe 50 years from now, they're grading for, uh, you know, color. Well, one Or it, freshness of gum. Yeah. Well, one that's one of the things with Germany. You know, German German stamps have an astronomical never hinge premium. One that just oh, yeah. puts it's, everything. It's like a lot of sometimes it's eight or nine times. Yeah. Whereas the interesting thing is like stamps from Thailand uh, may have literally zero premium for hinge versus never hinged. And I know this because. You know, I love the first four issues of uh, Thailand and nobody cares. Well, they care, but not very much whether it's hinged or never hinged. Whereas here, you know, a U.S. number one hinged versus a U.S. one never hinged. You're talking about just a monumental number of dollars that the price goes up. It's amazing. So let's just talk about used stamps. And in my opinion, they're really expensive. They're hard to find because they don't make them anymore. Um, and when did they stop making uh, peelable hinges? The, um, the Denisons? I think Denisons are one of the more available ones, yeah. But not very. I think they went out of, they stopped making hinges in like the 1990s or something like that. No, it's the Albert's, 1930s. No, no, no. Uh, Albert's shaking his head. I think it's like the 90s or so. Yeah. Yeah. No, they started in the 30s. They, they, and they make the best. Well, I mean, they were made with horse glue. Oh, I'm sure they were made out of something that today is environmentally unfriendly and I, I, baby seal I, I can't <laughs> I can't say for sure, but I am uh, my theory is that uh, they used uh, organic material in their gum making process and today we make everything with synthetic chemicals. Man. And I think that's uh, yeah, but gum, a gum big ar- difference. Gum arabic is a plant product. Yeah, but that's a big difference because the the chemical formulas are not peelable. So sometimes they don't even soak off when you even when you throw the used stamp into into yeah. water. So in my opinion, uh, Denison's hinges if you're hinging stamps, Prince hinges if you're hinging covers. You use a Prince hinge, that's that cover ain't going nowhere. Does anybody make the large cover corners anymore? Oh, yeah. They're out there. You just got to look for them. I don't, you know, in my exhibit, I don't like the look of the cover, uh, the corner mounts. If you get the ones with the clear. Yeah, I still don't like them. Yeah. It's so much cleaner, in my opinion, to mount it from the back. Now, sometimes if it has a cover, if it has a flap, 
I will actually use a mount, a V mount to hold the flap so that I don't put anything on the back. I'm not putting a hinge or anything, but I just like it when the front has nothing on it, but the cover and it's secured by the V mounts on the back. Oh, I absolutely think it looks better. Yeah. And, um, folded letters. I always do that because folded letters have a big, huge giant's flap. That's nice and straight. So you can just slide it right into a V mount and it works fantastic. And then again, from the front, it looks nice and clean. But if you don't have that, you know, I, I'll hinge a cover in there. I'll, I'll be nice. You know, I won't over hinge it or anything like that, but you know, I'll hinge a cover onto an exhibit page. Well, this day in history, in 1933, the USS Ranger at Newport News, Virginia, which was the first purpose-built aircraft carrier to be commissioned, was launched. The USS Ranger, which was CV-4, was a treaty ship built under the post-World War I treaty to prevent an arms race. Prevent an arms race, build a carrier. Yeah. Makes sense. Oh, I have a really, hold on, a really weird side story that I just saw. In World War II, the treaty prevented Germany from making airplanes. Because in World War I, they were making the best airplanes, and they said, we got to stop these guys. So they weren't allowed to build airplanes. But it didn't say anything about rockets, and the reason why Germany was so advanced in their rocket technology is they looked at the treaty and said, hey, it doesn't say anything about rockets. Well, the Ranger was the first U.S. vessel to be designed and built from the keel up as a carrier. Deemed too slow for use with the Pacific Fleet's carrier task forces against Japan, the ship spent most of World War II in the Atlantic Ocean, where the German fleet was a weaker opponent. The Rangers saw combat in the Atlantic theater and provided air support for Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa. And in October 1943, she fought in Operation Leader, launching air attacks on German shipping off of Norway. The Ranger did survive the war, but was sold for scrap in 1947. Also, uh, CV, every uh, different class has its own letters. And number. So CV4 is carrier vessel and the fourth one to be designated by that. The, the V is actually for a fixed wing aircraft. Oh. Yeah, the pre- says, says the guy who served in the Navy. The, yep. pre- the, pre- the previous three numbers, the first was a Langley. That was a Collier that was converted. And then... Um, we'll tell them what a Collier is. Cause a ship that carries, that carries fuel... Or uh, in the old days, coal for uh, for ships. Because when I first heard that it was a collier, I had no clue what a collier was. I had to look it up. Well, before 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 there was oil to prepare to, yeah. to you had to you had to shovel coal. So um, there are the big chases of uh, ships during World War One. A lot of it depended on where the ships that were being chased could get the coal. But uh, so the first first uh, carrier was the Langley, and then the next two were American battlecruisers that, because of the naval treaty, they had to convert, and that was the Lexington and the the Lexington and the Yorktown. When did the Enterprise come in? Um, they, that's CV six, I believe. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. They, 
it's it's a um, it's it's a great story about um, about our how our carriers evolved, but we were lucky enough to to uh, have no carriers in Pearl Harbor when the war started. Colliers were a group of people who ran around putting collars on collies. <laughs> well, originally, you know, collier, but coal carrier. So coal, instead of calling it a coal carrier, they called it a collier. And I just had never in my life heard that word before. Well, many collectors collect Navy covers, which were originally just a letter from a sailor or even a postcard with the postmark from the ship's post office. Navy ships have had their own post offices since 1908. By the 1930s, collectors began sending their own envelopes to ships for examples of these postmarks. Many have been decorated with designs called cachets, some of which are true works of art. Although early postmarks may be scarce, many are very modestly priced, and large collections can easily be formed without spending a lot of money. I have a, I have a very large number of cached, mostly cached naval covers from the 1930s. And um, it's kind of interesting to look the ships up on Wikipedia. You get a picture of the ship, and and you find out where it was, what it did. Some of them are pretty cool. Um, sometimes you run across a submarine, or um, the ones I particularly like, um, you'll find out, like, after the war, they went and they were part of the um, nuclear tests at the Bikini Atoll and things like that. You know, it was sunk, it was damaged, uh, you know, during a nuclear test. And and uh, I find that very interesting historically. And uh, I, I occasionally sell them on eBay, but um, I haven't sold any in quite a while because, again, the individual covers generally don't command large premiums. A lot of times the covers were... Um, Canceled for special days. You find uh, commissioning uh, and decommissioning are probably the most popular. Um, and then event covers like Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, Christmas Day, New Year's, Fourth of July uh, are all popular cachet types. Well, I, I sell them on eBay also, and I collect, but I collect very, very specific ones like you. If it has a great story, then I keep it. Another another time that they might cache it would be when they made a port of call. And well, you don't necessarily see the caches as met, as often on those. Those a lot of times will say where they were in the cancel, and it'll be just like a duplex killer, but it'll have between the bars it'll tell you where they were or why they were there. It might be a New Year's Day, uh, or it might be Shanghai, or it might be. Um, Rusa, a presidential visit or something like that. There's a special occasion. Sometimes, and the ones that that uh, you can't sell on eBay are the ones where they pulled into Havana, Cuba, or Guantanamo, <laughs> or something like that. And you can't sell them on eBay because anytime you say Cuba, they automatically bounce your listing. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's it's a legitimate cover, they were visiting a U.S. naval base located in pre-communist Cuba. <laughs> yep. Totally legitimate, totally legal, has... And visiting the, on a U.S. ship. <laughs> and it's a, a U.S. cover, a U.S. stamp, a U.S. ship, just happens to be visiting Cuba. But if you say Cuba anywhere in your listing, it's gone. And can, you get a warning. Can you just say Guantanamo? 
Uh, because Guantanamo's never sometimes be, sometimes they bounce it. Yeah, I would say maybe one out of five or one out of ten they bounce when because, you say Guantanamo. Because the naval base there has never been under the communist rule since we've had it since 1899. Doesn't right. matter. It, and I think the eBay guys just have failed to list that in their they just AI. Put in, yeah, they put an algorithm in there says if it says the word Cuba, bounce it. I had a um, uh, Spirit of St. Louis cover, and uh, the last flight of the Spirit of St. Louis started in Puerto Rico, went from Puerto Rico to Haiti, from Haiti to Cuba, from Cuba to Florida. So I could sell them all except the Haiti to Cuba. If I put down Spirit of St. Louis, final flight, Haiti to Cuba, in 1927, it would get removed. So I had to say Haiti to, and then something else and i believe havana is also on the oh yeah uh, havana, bounce, you can't, on the bounce you list. can't say havana you can't say cuba um i believe well what i used to do is i used to spell it c-u-b-b-a i two q two b's in it like the german way they spell it and so everybody goes oh you spelled it wrong it's like no well, you can see the listing <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah there's no nuance with ebay yeah yeah, Can you use K-U-B-A? Because that's also another spelling I've seen. Uh, I've seen it. Um, I've it, also seen Q-B-A. Yeah, I've seen quite a few ways to get around it. But it's like literally if you have C-U-B-A, your lot will get removed. To the well, people out there selling, trying to sell Cuba Gooding Jr. merchandise for the actor, right. that must be yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, the other thing is... You know, somebody looking at your listing can, in in this day of wokeness, you, they they can take offense and notify eBay, and you'll get your listing pulled and get a warning too. Uh, I so haven't you, had that happen yet, but, but uh, I, I understand that. Yeah, I mean, it, you're just trying to sell historical artifacts. I mean, it's not like you're advocating a political point of view. Now, Scott, didn't some of the famous uh, first day cover cachet makers make uh, naval covers? Yes, some of them did. Um, well, the most know. pretty one, pretty, whatever. I like the Crosbys. With the photos. Yeah, yeah the Crosby photos. And uh, Crosby actually sold that to somebody. I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Um, but he actually sold that, and they were produced after uh, after he stopped for, for uh, quite a while. But, yeah, if, if you can find a... A commissioning cover or something like that with the with the Crosby cachet design and the and the little actual photo of the ship, those are very collectible. And well, those those bring a, a decent premium. You usually can get usually you can get ten or fifteen dollars for those. Almost every single ship that I've seen has had a postcard issued for it. You know, a picture postcard. Yes. And when you can get the picture postcard with the cover. They sell very quickly. I had, I. They sell I, quicker. Oh yeah. I mean, even if you go on eBay and print out a picture of the ship, <laughs> yeah, and include it with your with your cover, um, well, people people want, actually yeah. appreciate that. People want the story. They want to know what it is. They want to know what it looked like. And ship covers are just like that. There's so much history to them. I just want to know where they put the post office in a submarine. <laughs> oh well, I will tell you that. Well, submarine, I can tell you, then sub, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> submarine covers, from what I have experienced through my sales, 
sell probably five times faster than ship covers. Everybody's Had, after submarine absolutely, covers. Absolutely. And, uh, well, it's very dangerous canceling stamps on a torpedo. <laughs> well, that's a, the funny thing is, is, you know, a lot of people go, well, you know, ships from the 1980s and stuff like that, because people buy, you know, ships that they served on. And they do, but they like buy one of them or something, or they already have them. Well, the other problem is if you have World War II era submarines. Nobody served on those yet. Uh, it's still alive. Those people are all passed on. Yeah. So a lot of that is no longer, you can't market to that It's all the story. It's all the story. It uh, is. Well, there those, has, there those has been. Those that good stories sell. There has been a severe drop in the membership in the Universal Ship uh, Cancellation Society. Yes, but you know what I have seen to offset that is ships are generally named after somebody or something. And so, like, I just yesterday, I shipped uh, the Lewis and Clark, and I believe it was a fast frigate. And they bought it just because Lewis and Clark, they weren't buying the ship, they were buying the topic. And I think that as topical collecting increases, you're going to see a lot of these be in very high demand because of that. Not to mention one of the things that I always find interesting is like uh, the USS Peterson, and it'll be bought by a guy named George Peterson. You know, so they buy the ships. They'll do a search for like their last name and they'll see it and they'll buy it. But uh, market wise, I price all my covers at about five bucks each. But if it doesn't have anything really going for it, I'll put it down to two dollars. And at two dollars, people buy it just to, you know, try to get every one of the ship. Because one of the cool things about collecting ship covers is like uh, the Ranger is CV4. Well, they're numbered. So you have a start point and an end point. So you can have a collection of all the carriers. You have CV1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way to number, I think it's 68 right now. So you have 68 covers. You have completed a collection. And that has a lot of appeal to people. And if they didn't have those numbers, I'll bet you you wouldn't have had so many people collecting naval covers. Well, there are a group of people who collect, um, try to collect all the ships that were in Pearl Harbor on December 7th. Yeah, that's another that, one. That's yeah. another selling point, yes. Yep. When, the, uh, when the sailors create the letters and stuff like that, that and they put it through the post office on the ship, does the, does the mail go out when they reach a port or the very first port or... Uh, that depends. Nowadays, it's it's different than it was 60, 80, 100 years ago. Um, back in, when you're talking about World War One, World War Two era, um, yeah, the, the ship would generally have to reach a port um, to pass off mail or to receive mail. Um, occasionally, they would get it during replenishment at sea, um, but that was a low priority kind of thing. Actually, it was not a low priority. It was medium priority because morale of the sailors is uh, very important. But, um, yeah, even even when I started, uh, we would have uh, underway replenishment and uh, we would get mail. But we also had a helicopter come by about every two or three days and they would drop mail on the deck for us and, and then they would snag a mailbag and take it off. 
And which they, ship were you on? I was on the first ship I was on was the USS California, and so um, that's a smaller ship. We didn't have our own helicopter or aircraft, so we had to ha- we had to be with a battle group or another ship that had that to be able to send and receive mail. And there was no internet at the time, so that was the only way we could communicate with the outside world when we were at sea. Um, if you were on a big ship like an aircraft carrier, they have the fixed-wing aircraft, and if you're in range of land, then they'll fly daily, usually, in so and out. Were were any special uh, markings added to indicate uh, things like that, picked up by helicopter? Or? No. Generally, um, ships maintain a uh, P.O. box address stateside. Um, they're generally designated as FPO, Fleet Post Office. A lot of times you'll see APO, which is the Army Post Office, but they're centrally located. Most of the West Coast ones are in uh, California and San Francisco, and so all of the fleet's mail is routed through there, and then it's sent out through the Navy um, on aircraft out to get it to where the the uh, ships are. So when I was deployed in the Persian Gulf, they would fly it over to Bahrain where they would sort it by individual ship and then they would fly it out to the carrier and the carrier would helo it out to the different ships. That's funny to me how it seems to correlate. You talk about it all going into one location and I think of, you know, all the mail from the United States going to like back in the 1800s going to like New York or Boston to go across the Atlantic to get to Europe. This is all going to one location to go on a ship to go somewhere else. And you're talking, it's like yeah. in the 1980s, we're still doing the same thing in a way. Yeah. But now, n- now with the email, a lot of the ships have uh, satellite uplinks when they're not doing uh, sensitive operations. A lot of times you can email on and off the ship um, most of the time. And, uh, and so physical mail is a little bit less important, but... Um, Sailors like to get care packages, you know, packages from home with little things that they can't get when they're at sea or in an overseas port. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, you know, maybe a candy bar that they can't get or certain snack or, you know, sometimes it's just something simple like socks or cigarettes, although mm-hmm. cigarettes are generally cheaper on the ship because you don't have to pay the, the uh, taxes when they're out at sea. No. But... uh which is interesting when they pull in port, you do have to pay the tax. <laughs> uh, but um, as far as the mail goes, um, there's uh, most um, surface ships have a dedicated mail room where, it, and it's, you know, on a small ship, it can be a really small office, but there's a small desk and, and a little area for them to sort things. And uh, they cancel the sh- they cancel the mail right there, and uh, they have guys that are uh, trained, and that's their only job is basically as a postal clerk, hmm. and that's what they do. That's their job on the ship. Now on on a on a submarine, you may not have a postal clerk. You may have somebody else from the cr- crew doing that part time, right? And then it would be just a little area where they can lock up the mail once it's come in or once it's gone out and generally when it comes in they sort it fairly quickly and then uh, over the announcing system they'll they'll do mail call and uh, usually each division will have a representative who's designated as the mail pickup person and there they go and they sign for picking up the mail 
they bring it back and distribute it to however many people are in their division. It might be anywhere from five or eight people up to 40 or 50 or more, depending hmm. on the size of the ship and the size of the division. Right. Well, we need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. You can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our P.O. box is 539-309, Henderson, Nevada, 89053. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 291, closing in on 300. Oh, getting there quick. Almost been doing this a whole year, once a day. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Mark. This was Albert. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.